I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds. I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? I accept. I accept. Train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days, an exploration podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you as per usual by three history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing the lone countries, territories, settlements, and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong, and joining me today are... Mark Boyle from Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Nottingham in the UK. And in this episode we'll be talking about the most serene republic of San Marino, the world's oldest constitutional republic and a country that is in itself a historical oddity. Similarly to other European microstates such as Monaco, Liechtenstein and Andorra, it's a relic of a time when borders were formed based on the area that a cannon could reach from a city wall. Founded on the slopes of Mount Titano in 301 AD, this tiny republic has seen the rest of Europe consolidate around it, surviving attacks by other self-governing Italian city-states, the Napoleonic Wars, the unification of Italy and two world wars. Today, its borders are entirely enclosed by Italy, making it one of only three countries in the world to be enclosed by another nation. It is the smallest independent state in Europe after the Vatican City in Monaco, and up until the independence of our old friend Nauru in 1968, it was the smallest republic in the world, at just Ah, 61 square kilometers or (laughs) 23.6 square miles. Tourism dominates the economy of modern-day San Marino, which plays host to more than 3 million visitors every year while the Republic itself is home to just over 30,000 people. To start out uh, this season, I think we're going to try something slightly different and ask you guys about what you found were the most interesting things in the course of your research. So let's say, Mark, what do you think is particularly interesting about San Marino before we get into early history? Um, well, I have the Middle Ages, that's uh, what I was researching, and one of the best characters I found was a guy called Sigismondo de Malatesta, aka the Wolf of Rimini. Uh, Rimini is the kind of nearby city which always seems to be a pain in the ass for San Marino. When people invade, they're always invading from Rimini. Mm-hmm. Rimini is always the big problem. And Sigismondo de Malatesta, he is a big problem for San Marino. So he's my favorite, uh, favorite thing I learned about. He sounds ominous. Oh, yeah. All right. And Joe? Any fun facts for us? You're going to hear about a little place that should be, it shouldn't be independent, but they just keep, by a mixture of, of politeness and, and luck, um, tricking mighty figures of, of European history into not conquering them. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's a little guy story that I think we're going to enjoy. All right. Um, mine is more of a sort of modern thing but uh yeah one one thing that i stumbled across in my research is that if you have a samaranese passport uh you don't need a visa to visit china for up to up to 90 days Mm. which is the longest uh of any visa exception for any country in the world Hmm. is there a reason i'm not i'm not even sure what the reason is i think they just have a particularly probably just some the chinese Um, president visited once and they were really nice to him that seems to be their style yeah via via table manners and saying please and thank you they've managed to keep their country independent (laughs) there's only a small handful of countries that can visit china visa free and Hmm. the only other european country is serbia and i think they only i think serbia only get like 15 days or something so like a 90 day 
um, visa-free visit to, to China, which is obviously like quite restrictive on yeah. who can visit and for how long is, is well, uh, even, pretty interesting. Even visiting from Hong Kong is hard work, right? Yeah, exactly. Huh. So, which is, is in the country. Uh, anyway, shall we get into early history? That's you, Joe. There's pretty much no, like, this is a tiny, tiny, tiny place. It's, it's a mountain. It's basically a, a three-pronged mountain yeah. mm. in the middle of the Italian peninsula, kind of on the Adriatic side, in the Apennines. But it doesn't even have any, like, natural borders even, really. No, you know, nope. there's nothing that, it's not up against a river or coastline or anything. So And so, in terms of prehistory and, and Roman era, there's not really much to talk about. I mean, we could we could talk about Italy, but um, this one particular speck of Italy doesn't have anything that sets it apart. So we're, we're going to dive straight into what makes San Marino special, and that, that's pretty much where its name comes from. Um, San Marino, or the most serene mm-hmm. republic of San Marino, is named after a saint, uh, San Marino. Huh? Or Saint Marinus. What? Yeah, shocking. Who is the founder of the country? Mm. The actual events of the foundation are obviously shrouded in myth and legend because we're talking about 301 AD uh, is the accepted date. So some, sometime in September 301 AD is, is the when the celebration of the foundation of San Marino is always held. Um, and the story goes that Marinus and his friend Leo mm. were both stonecutters in the <laughs> island of uh, Arbe, which is now called Rab. It's, it's in Croatia, modern-day Croatia. But at that time, it was the Roman province of Dalmatia. Mm. And um, as I say, there's a few different versions, but in, in, in 297, these two Christians leave Dalmatia, cross the Adriatic, and land in Rimini. In one version... Uh, the Emperor Diocletian had ordered the walls of that city rebuilt after being destroyed by Liburnian pirates. And he came there to work in the quarries. And there were lots of Christian slaves had been sent there as punishment and he preached to them. So that's version one. And the the other more common version is that um, this is the period of the Diocletian uh, persecution of Christians. Mm-hmm. So Emperor Diocletian famously, just before Constantine the Great becomes a Christian emperor, his immediate predecessor, Diocletian and his his co-emperors were trying to stamp out Christianity and, and Manichaeism and a few other religious uh, groups and reform the Roman religion into a more unified thing. So this is like the last time you could root for Christianity as an underdog in the context of Europe. Uh, after exactly, this, yes. it's, you know... Pretty dominant. It's all, all up, up, up. Yeah, this clearly went well. This this effort to, to stamp it out clearly went very well, yeah. um, judging by modern day standards, obviously. It, it, it didn't. Um, and so the, the more common story is that he fled this persecution. I mean, St. George, who we talked about in Georgia, he was he is traditionally martyred in this persecution when they wanted to clear the army of, of Christian, suspicious Christians, you know, who had split loyalties. Mm. Um, nothing like that would happen ever again in history. In Italia, the, the province of Italy, um, this was ruled by Maximi- Maximian, who was a, one of uh, Diocletian's co-emperors, and he was less anti-Christian than the other co-emperors. Maximilian, um, you could be like co-emperor. I'll be emperor, and you'd be like co-emperor. It's it's like the same, but just, yeah, you're my co-emperor. Uh, if, you're, if you're curious about learning more about this period in our time, BBC Radio 4 did a great episode on Constantine the Great a few months ago. So um, it kind of 
fleshes out that period of Roman history. Uh, so anyway, he lands at Rimini. He is uh, ordained a deacon by Gaudentius, the bishop of Rimini, uh, and he was a long, he was a lifelong uh, bachelor, and is the patron saint of deacons and single men. So that's uh, that's, that's, thing, that's so. such a loaded like it's, single my, men. I'm, nice. I'm, my my I'm red sure flag uh, ometer is just like wobbling, <laughs> just with the uh, single man. Uh, yeah. Se- se- secretly I'm, gay, persecuted, terrified, <laughs> buried himself in the church, or uh, yeah, just uh, <laughs> something else also terrible. He he hoored around a lot and was unmarriable. Uh, also, things yeah. that pop in my head when I hear confirmed bachelor. So. so so deacons and single men are probably a, you know, a reasonable chunk of our listenership. So there's your patron saying, guys. Um, you scumbags. I know what you're thinking. You props failed. to all the deacons out there. Um, anyway. He, in, in Rimini, he was confronted by, again, two versions. Either an insane woman or an evil woman called Athleta, uh, who in either case accused him of being her estranged husband. And... Um, Either because she was insane or wanted to like shame him or get him imprisoned, or or, or just other other interpretation. Maybe he was her estranged husband, and 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 Marinus is like, "Have you heard what I'm patron saint of? Do you <laughs> have you heard of me?" Yeah. And so he flees to uh, Monte Titano uh, to avoid this calumny, and lived as a hermit uh, in a cave there. And they, they, they claim the cave is, like, there is a cave that is claimed to be this cave. You can still see the smoke marks on the rocks and, you know, all the stuff saints get. Mm. There's a few nice stories about him fighting bears, because it's the mountains, there's bears. He, he right. rolled some rocks down the slope to, like, crush bears that were threatening him, according to one story. Another story said that wow. the bear ate his donkey. Right. Um, and so he, uh, <laughs> he, he he hung his saddlebags on the, do- on the bear instead and made it. I mean, made it be his donkey. That's a bit. That's a bit like white trash. Bear ate my donkey. <laughs> it's pretty like. <laughs> Where's that guy yeah. living up the cliff? So. Yeah, buried his donkeys. Tough for him. Uh, and there, who's that woman? That <laughs> well, crazy woman. Yeah, she says he's his wife, and he's he went up the mountain since. Uh, he says he's single. I don't know. He keeps killing bears. Anyway, um, he was. Then discovered by the owner of the land, a wealthy Roman woman called uh, Felicissimia, okay. I think. Um, that's a good name. I think that means really, really happy. Yeah, Felis, like Feliz Navidad. Yeah. Feliz happiness. That's, that's a nice name. So was she happy to see him? <laughs> she must have been. Uh, careful now. This weird guy who lives on her land and is killing all of her bears and stuff. I mean. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you have pet bears. I mean, you don't want bears on your land. So she was a, a Roman. This is her country estate because she was really, really rich. And version one of the story, she met him and she went, oh, he's very holy. And she gave him the mountain because she liked him and then got baptized. That's the, the simple version. Do you want to get the, baptized? The... I'm, I'm okay. Thank you. I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know what fluid <laughs> you're trying to solicit me with. Anyway. And then the longer version is that um, her sons were in the Imperial Guard and they weren't big fans of the uh, hmm. of this random hermit living on their land uh, with his weird religion. Fair enough. Um, yeah, and so one of them went out with a, with, a, with a bow to shoot him. And when he tried to shoot him, his arm got paralysed and he went home. 
Uh, they summoned St. Marinus to their house to fix the, the magic or whatever. Um, he, I'm quoting here from a really somewhat patronising book from about a century ago called Two Quaint Republics. Um, and it says, the, the visit of San Marino to the villa of the Roman matron was memorable. As he approached, he ordered the statues of the gods cast down from their niches. Apollo, as the deity of health, fell, never to rise again. No more incense was burned before the lares and the penates of the atrium. Dot, dot, dot. Um, San Marino restored the paralysed arm. There you go. <laughs> he did it! So, he, basically, he, he, he told him, get, yeah. get rid of your old religion, and then he cured him, and Felicissima was like, that's really... The curse was lifted. That's impressive. I'll get baptised. Have a mountain. <laughs> Have a mountain on me. It's filled with bears. I obviously hate you. But donkey bears. It's, I wonder, does that have anything to do, actually, Joe, with um, they're, they're big into crossbow shooting now. That's like their national sport, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I wonder, I wonder, is that where that comes from? I think that has more to do with medieval self-defense. <laughs> yeah, shooting Italians. From the top of your mountain. And... He a kind of a community started building up around this saint in his little hermitage of families who came to live there, fleeing Christians who looked for the safety of this stronghold. Then importantly, in 366, when he died, he, on his deathbed, said to his followers, Rinquo vos liberos ab utroque homine, which means, I leave you free from both men, which was interpreted to mean the Pope and the Emperor. Oh, right. So... The, the myth of liberty and the, the kind of birthright of liberty was pretty much there from, from day one. Mm-hmm. Saying, we're us. You don't owe your allegiance to anyone. In sometime in the 400s or 500s, a monk called Eugippius mm-hmm. was writing a, a biography of St. Severinius. And he references a monastery on, on Monte Titano. So that's mm-hmm. the first historical document that... that makes it clear there was this religious community here. From the get-go, it seems to have been either leaderless or republican in nature. So they could claim to be a republic from 300, but that's probably pushing it. But definitely pretty early on, they never had a king or a duke or anything. Mm -hmm. In 568, when the Lombards were sweeping into northern Italy, and then the Franks uh, after them, as the Roman Empire collapses, the population swelled as people thought this little mountain community was a nice, safe place to live. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and you do get the, uh, an awkward moment in 752 when the body of St. Marinus was stolen by Astolphus, king of the Lombards, and carried away to Pavia, although allegedly Pepin the Short gave it back. So <laughs> okay. they still display his head on important feast days in, in the church of St. Agatha. So they, they, they claim they have him, Pavia claim they have him. Who knows? Um, Let's hope San Marino has San Marino. I, I, I'm channeling a, a 12-year-old uh, Age of Empires fact. Pepin the Short, was he a Frank? Yeah, yeah, he was, one, okay. he was the first Carolingian king. Okay, sweet. Yeah, so he's kind of uh, Charlemagne's family, that, right. that, group, that group of people. So from a, at least the 600s, you start getting this ruling body being talked about, which is called the, the Arengo. We're going to hear about mm. that a few times, which was basically a, the heads of the important families met together and made decisions like the Senate in Rome. Mm. And this is sort of considered a Republican model. I mean, not like a modern Republic with yeah. universal votes and everything, but like it was ruled by the people rather than by 
a king. And they were unique in the region for having no head of state. It was just the Arengo was the mm-hmm. was the ruling body, and there was no top dog. So I, I, I mentioned Pepin the Short, your Age of Empires king. Oh, yep. And he famously, uh, there's a thing called the Donato, the, the, the donation of Pepin, which is the legal basis, the, the papacy used for having papal states. So they okay. claimed that Pepin had given them this part of Italy to rule as a country, in addition to being a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, later in legal cases, the church would claim this meant they ruled San Marino. But um, San Marino cites a legal dispute in 885, which is the first document confirming the existence of an organized legal community mm-hmm. in San Marino. And it was between the Bishop of Rimini, Rimini are always a problem, mm-hmm. and Stephen, the abbot of San Marino. Just Steve. He prefers Steve. He's very informal. Steve, yeah. Uh, Steve Abbott. Yeah. And yeah. the fact that they had to call in, a, a, you know, an external judge to, to look at this case um, was mm. evidence that they weren't operating under Roman law and therefore they were their own, their own thing and will continue to be their own thing. All right. So around this year, they start building castles just like every other Italian city mm-hmm. in, on the peninsula. Famously, you get these three castles on the three mountain peaks, and that's currently the symbol on, on the flag yeah. and on the, the seal of the country. Um, just uh, um, to chime in there, actually, mm-hmm. uh, this is from my later on culture section, but one of their local foods is a, a three-layered cake, Torta Tremonti, uh, which mm. is like a mega dark Kit Kat. Uh, and you can buy Ooh. it in like a little tin. You know those like uh, those Dutch pancake things you can get in a, a packet, like a, a waffly yeah. looking. Yeah, so it's like a huge one of those, but with very dark chocolate Kit Kat vibes to it. But it's called Torta Tremonti, named after the Three Mountains of San Marino. Sounds delicious. Um, have to get some. Okay, so the territory of the um, of the country expanded around eleven and twelve hundreds mm-hmm. by buying from the Counts of Montefeltro, mm-hmm. who you're going to talk about quite a bit, I imagine, yep. Mark. Um, but they bought Casolo and Penarossi, which were castles and, and towns, um, and also the, the Burgo, where the, the capital was founded. So you're starting to get towards the, not quite the modern boundaries, but pretty close, mm-hmm. um, in and around 1200. And then just before um, we, we dive into more detailed history, it's important to point out that Republics weren't so unusual at this point in Italian history, like the Oregno of the ruling families with councillors appointed for life um, wasn't crazy. I mean, Ravenna, Genoa, Amalfi, Naples, Venice, uh, Verona, Florence, these were all trying out republicanism uh, during this era. Is it maybe worth saying at this point that that this this is the norm, that Italy as a, yeah. as a concept yeah. is a thing... Italy only became a thing in 1870, thereabouts, maybe a slightly before. It became a single country, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, even the Roman Empire was divided into these uh, little sections that were pretty pretty mm-hmm. autonomous, bar that they had to bend yep. the knee to, to Rome itself. So the idea that there are all these little warring states and the papal states and uh, the Venetians and the Milanese and Turin and all, all these different Naples, for God's sakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's so, so little, forever. Little... Little states are the norm post-collapse of the empire. Yeah. But the fact that lots of them tried out the Republican model, oh, yeah. emulating yeah, yeah. the Roman Republic yeah. that existed, what, 
eight, eight, nine hundred years previous uh-huh. is interesting. And San Marino wasn't unique yeah. at that time. So it's not the oldest republic to ever exist. It's the oldest one that still exists. Yeah, because I think, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, a lot of those smaller republics were eventually consolidated into larger mm. and are now Italy. countries. Or... And they're now Italy. Yeah. yeah. Which is um, kind of democratic. Ki- yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Italy. <laughs> so somewhat. So just to, to round out my section, in 1243, I like a bit of constitutional law. Mm, nothing uh, Joe likes more. In 1243, uh, we get the first recorded uh, heads of state elected. They were called consuls at this point Mm -hmm. and were appointed for six months, two at a time. So this was really emulating the Roman Republican model. Yeah. And now this basically continues to this day. So the first recorded ones are 1243 and there's almost a complete list from then till now. Their name changed a few times. They were Mm -hmm. consuls for a bit. And then they were called the captain and the defender, so two distinct roles. Ooh. And then the captain and the rector in Ooh, 1317. Oh, that's good. Oh, I don't like. And that usually so much. one was upper class and one was working class, which is interesting. That's kind of cool. Though I think yeah. working class meant something different in the Middle Ages. <laughs> I think we mean one was a noble and one was someone who farmed or owned a business. A farmer, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I, I prefer the term defender to rector. FYI, Just, yeah. if when you're writing yeah. my epitaph. I was a defender, only occasionally a rector when uh, the situation demanded it. Yeah, but this it's pretty interesting that this this still like goes on until now the modern day, yeah. and that they have two heads of state, so for they're known as each. captains regent now, both of them, and they they only serve for six months at a time. So I assume and, I don't know. Did you do a bit more reading on this show? I assume like people can serve multiple terms. Yes, but, but they yeah, have to. You can, you're only eligible switch out if you're, for one term at a time. Twenty five, I think. Um, you have to be born in San Marino, so mm. be a citizen mm. by by origin. Right, right. And you, if you've been a captain regent within three years, you're not eligible. So you you can't run forever, but you can have another go later. Show us the birth cert. Yeah. He wasn't uh, born here. Then, not our uh, captain's regent. Oh God. And interesting, they're not two heads of state. They together are one head of state, legally. Hmm. Right. They're half a head of state. Yeah, they don't act independently. And they're appointed in, at least right now, they're appointed in October and April each year. Yeah, and I think uh, that's gone back to 1243. Uh, With a few exceptions that we might talk about. It's got to be pretty weird, like, to have... Your head of state change every six months. And they're pretty ceremonial, though. I mean, the, the EU does that with their rotating presidency. It's every six months, I think, isn't it? True, true. And that was really the model of the Roman Republic, was to try and stop anyone having too much power. Exactly. For, for too long. So you give mm. people lots of power for short periods of time and hope they'll use it mm-hmm. wisely and not become a dictator. Yeah, there's a cool thing that they, they can't be prosecuted during their term. However, yes. uh, in, in 1499 rules come in, which mean that after they finish a term, there's a 15-day period where any complaints for things they have done or haven't done during their mandate are... Um, can, can be lodged by can, citizens. Yeah, to the Regency Syndicate. <laughs> it's a pretty opaque-sounding organisation. It's now some kind of court. The Regency Syndicate. What that body you report to is has changed, but its existence goes back a long time. Right. The first statutes and laws there's records of are 1253. And they gave a new role to the, the Grand and General Council, which was a, a 60-person council elected from the Areño. And this takes on an increasingly important role going forward as the you know meeting of hundreds of people became a bit unwieldy. Yeah. 
that lasts. That's like a that's a thing that goes on for hundreds of years. That's still that, that that's still the parliament today. All right. Uh, the you know elections are. I think they were they were elected for life in this period, but okay. now it's for like five year terms. But uh, otherwise, the the structures, the basic structures of society, have been laid down here in twelve fifty three. All right. Uh, do you think that's a, a good time to take a, a quick yeah, break on. here? I think so. All right, and then we'll get into the the Middle Ages. So we'll be back just after this. Mark, I believe you have uh, a lot of stuff to talk to us about on the Middle Ages. Is that right? Many, many things. Um, so Strap I, yourself in, folks. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I was following through Joe's stuff because I, I, a lot of my notes come from this book I, I read uh, by uh, Giuseppe Rossi um, or Joseph Red, which is very very communist and suspicious if you translate it, um, which is a short history <laughs> of the Joe. Republic of San Marino, who is a, a Samarinese uh, historian and wrote this little, little tiny booklet, but is uh, very, very interesting. It goes through the whole uh, Middle Ages a little bit before. But all the names that you were mentioning, Joe, which were uh, all like uh, Latin, Roman names, all were there in Italian in my notes. So uh, oh, I see. Y- you had... Um, oh, you had... Uh, I don't know, Eugipides or something. And my guy was Eugipio, yeah. who, 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 okay. who told the legend of Basilico uh, about Stefano. Uh, so, yeah, I was just following that through with yeah. uh, an Italian accent. In my Most head. of my sources are early 20th century written by Americans or English people. So they were going to the Latin, I suppose. Um, so just a little around that time of that 1253, those statutes, um, hmm. at least in the book that I read, it seemed like the, the, the whole idea of establishing themselves and establishing a structure to kind of keep themselves honest came from um, a guy called Bishop Ugolino, uh, who uh, was a hugely important guy locally in, in San Marino, who was a local leader. Uh, he kind of pushed um, or advised San Marino into kind of throwing in their lot with the Gibellines, uh, who were the uh, Italian aristocrats and uh, the imperialists. Uh, so Frederick uh, Frederick II, Emperor Frederick II. So we should probably give a little bit of context there. So th- there was a big dispute for about 200 years mm. in, in all Europe between the, 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 the Ghibellines, who were this crew, yeah. the pro, pro-Holy Roman Empire yeah. crew. Holy Roman Empire. The, the, what were they called? The, the, ah, the Guelphs? Oh, the Guelphs. Yes, that was the other crowd. Yeah, Guelphs. Yeah, the Guelphs, who were pro-Pope. Yeah, I suppose. Uh, and the dispute was largely around who gets to appoint bishops. Sort of similar dispute to what leads to the Reformation, like five, six hundred years later. An or, administrative, no, uh, you know, yeah, admi- multi-centurial feud. Three hundred years later. So, you know, who gets to appoint, you know, is our bishops uh, that are important to running countries, are they appointed by the heads of those countries mm-hmm. or by the Pope in Rome? And that dispute carries on but in this manifestation it tore apart kingdoms and 
republics and, and stuff all across northern Italy. And, and San Marino like went in with Emperor Frederick II and the Ghibellines and, and the emperor was excommunicated by the Pope over this. Mm. And uh, kind of you'll see that in the next couple of hundred years, San Marino isn't on amazing terms with the Pope. It's certainly, no. you know, things kind of go okay, but you could see it, uh, the, the relationship isn't automatically amazing. The, the Pope's kind of support is always a little bit in question. So just to introduce a guy, Guido de Montefeltro. Uh, so the Montefeltros were a local uh, high up family. Uh, they held the seat of the Duke of Urbino. Um, mm-hmm. as, as with the kind of the Latin names and the uh, Italian names, you see a lot of kind of interchangeable uh, terms, you know, because people had nicknames, but they also had their own name. And then often they had a kind of an aristocratic seat as well. And you'll see the same person being referred to by all three names and it can be quite hard yes. to track. Um, but this guy it's was like a Russian romance novel. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, Guido de Montefeltro, who is an enormously big character. He's directly referred to by Dante, uh, as in Dante's Inferno and, and so on, and the, the mm. Divine Comedy, who was a poet at this time. Dante referred to him as not Leonine, but Foxy. Uh, so not like a lion, but like a fox. Wow, um, Foxy. So <laughs> this, is, this is Foxy in the, in the sense of um, of sly rather than. You know, he was a silver fox. And Hey, look, I, I am willing to believe this guy was good at boning. I, I will say that outright. The cool stuff he did and the attitude he showed, I feel like he he, he could do it in the bedroom too. Uh, I the, the smart money's on that, I would say. Moving on. Yeah. Nope, let's dwell. <laughs> I disagree, Joe. Swiftly. We already get into this. Under the covers of Guido de Montefeltro. Uh <laughs> Anyway, so just an example of, of, of what he what he was like. In 1281, there was a Battle of Forli. So uh, he was fighting with uh, uh, the, one of the Pope's armies, the Pope's fourth French army. What did he do with the other three? I guess they were all fighting different sections of angry Italians. Um, so his French army had camped up in this city called Forli. He had been in Forli before, and instead of you know running away from the from the the Pope's army, they just kind of hid in the houses. And uh, they got the locality who were kind of supporting them to, you know, welcome them. They're your liberators. Get them drunk. Give them a slice of pie or whatever. Just like feed them up and make them sleepy. So they got them all drunk. And then uh, they had some kind of signal where the the bell tower started ringing at like 4 a.m. Where all the French guys were absolutely like just asleep in the streets and then just kill them in their beds and <laughs> just killed everyone uh, i have in my notes that it's like reverse trojan wow. horse you kind of invite the enemy in and pretend you're not there and in the middle of the night slit their throat um so that was called the hmm. battle of forley um he also was allied uh i think you saw the story as well joe uh, he was, oh i did i love this story anything for an italian pawn he, he was uh, allied with the parsitadi so Parsitadi was was the name of the, the guys he was allied with. Oh, this this was a particular guy. So Parsitadi was like Mr. Parsitadi. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was his he name. He was the leader of this group. Yeah. Um, and uh, so they were based in nearby Rimini. And uh, they were pushed out by the Malatestas. Who, the Malatestas were always the, the, the enemy. It was the Montefeltros, who were the good guys, in San Marino's view, versus the Malatestas, who were the bad guys. And, and they sound bad. I'm pretty sure malatesta means... And it also has t- like testicle towards the end. Bad testicle. Uh, so bad testicle de Verrucchio <laughs> is this guy's name. And uh, so uh, bad testicle pushed out uh, Parsitari. He pushed out the ally. And 
The Parsi Tatties were absolutely destroyed, and the last Parsi Tatties staggered back to San Marino, where Guido was holed up, and Guido welcomed him with the words, Benvenga, Messer, Perde Citadi, which actually translates to, Welcome, Mr. City Loser. Um, that's a that's a sick burn. Yeah, that's sick a burn. Sick burn. <laughs> well, well you imagine wow. you just you just troll up the hill and your allies like ah loser. Yeah, basically, and with a pun on your name. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty good. Um, There's a reason that survives through the ages, where the the actual statutes and laws don't. Mm. So in 1291, we had another one of these trials where the Pope was quite keen to get his hands on. San Marino. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sent some papal envoys who turned up and asked San Marino to get in line behind the Pope. San Marino, uh, valuing their independence, didn't really want to go along with that, and they asked for an independent adjudicator, a guy from Rimini called Palamede. Um, the trial went the way that all of these trials seem to go, which is that they recognize that San Marino, uh, because of the guarantees given by San Marino on his deathbed, is its own thing and is beholden to nobody, including the Pope. I have a quote here from that from that judgment, Mark, which uses your favourite word. Mm. Palamede declared that San Marino was free and exempt from any exterior suzerainty and Ooh. rule whatsoever. Suzerainty, that's the word. I love it. So in 1296, bear in mind this is only five years later, a different powerful neighbour, I didn't make a note of which one that was because there was a lot of them. Uh, the, the Bishop of Montefeltro. The Bishop of Montefeltro, all right. So, yeah, another powerful guy, this uh, this bishop came along. And San Marino actually went to the Pope, the Pope that they had just rebuffed only five years earlier. Uh, but it was a new Pope, so Boniface VIII. So, good face, Boniface? Good, good face, the eighth? Um, yeah. So, Boniface had no idea of anything, because he was a stupid idiot. And he had no idea of the previous issues or of this issue. And he asked a local abbot to come in, hear both sides. Uh, and the abbot basically did like a, a little public survey. He kind of went to San Marino and asked people what they thought. Um, and every single person was saying like, no, you're out of your mind. San Marino is the founder. He gave us the guarantee. Anybody who says otherwise is lying a sack of crap. Uh, the judgment of uh, Abbot Ranieri, who was the, the judge, um, included the following quotes from local populations. What is freedom? To fear nobody. What is exemption? Man to be free, to hold that which is his own for himself and nobody else but Jesus Christ our Saviour. Um, so, yeah, basically we are us. It's hard for the Pope to argue with that. Yeah, flip off. Mm-hmm. In 1300, they celebrated their 1000th anniversary and there was mass broad declarations of peace and friendship with all of their neighbours. That's nice. Um didn't really last. In the 1300s, they had to defend against attacks propagated by a local bishop called Uberto. By 1320, that was again uh, peaceful. Uh, his successor, Bishop Benvenuto. Um, so yeah, this was a, a strange one. They Bishop Welcome. Yeah, Bishop, bishop Welcome. Uh, bishop Welcome um, convinced the Pope to allow the sale of San Marino to the Malatesta, to this family that are always the, the, the local enemies. So, yeah, he, he welcomed... But he the, didn't own it. <laughs> yeah, but he told the Pope that they had already invaded it and that if he didn't allow him to sell it to the Malatesta, who had it, that it would be awkward, really, because they would have it, but not legally, and that would mean there would be rebellion and fighting and shooting, not shooting, stabbing, um, and that he should just really sell it and just sell it, so just sell it. Um, but um, as he didn't 
as, as the Malatesta hadn't actually invaded it, uh, this kind of stalled everything. So eventually the Pope found out that the Malatesta had not in fact occupied it and that he, him agreeing to it was actually shaming him and embarrassing and he was really pissed off. Yeah, it was really bad for Bishop Welcome. Uh, the, the Pope wasn't very keen. And in later years, Bishop Welcome would seek sanctuary in San Marino uh, after he was expelled from San Leo. San Leo being um, San Marino's Bezzi uh, that he went up the mountain with originally. He was, oh, yeah. uh, he was uh, his old buddy. Um, so he had problems with San Leo, the town, and he actually went to San Marino saying, hey, I remember all that stuff. Forget about all this stuff, because uh, uh, I need your help, please. Uh, and they allowed him. And this is like one of these examples, if you see San Marino being so, you know, shrugging, self-effacing. You just sort of need to ask for asylum, and they'll be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and cool. even though this guy had really messed them around, they had no uh, ill will towards him. They, you know, bygones be bygones, and just let him let him hang wow. out. Wow. Uh, and that is kind of the... Even though you tried to sell... Sell our our yes. country. <laughs> Try to sell them out. Yep. You know, without having any claim over it. Then mm-hmm. yeah, sure, we'll, we'll help you out. And San Marino just chilled out, didn't do anything, and it fixed itself. That is the San Marino way. It seems. Keep calm, uh, be nice. Think things will be fine. Okay, so moving into the fourteen hundreds, they had really strongly affirmed their relationship with the Count of Urbino, a, a bit of a heavy hitter locally. And he gave them provisions and military support because, again, Rimini was making a lot of noise about possibly invading. Oh, Rimini. He made the threat that he would burn every single Malatesta property between San Marino and Rimini if they tried to, uh, if they tried to invade. So the person making these threats was the guy I mentioned earlier, Sigismondo de Malatesta, born in 1417, died some years later. I won't give it away. Um, and he was known as the Wolf of Rimini. So he was a really famous uh, military commander. He fought all over Italy uh, and kind of was a long-term enemy for San Marino in these years. Um, he learned to fight with his family against his family cool. age 13. Uh, he was commanding armies at age 13 and beat much larger armies. He became the head of Rimini at 15. Uh, he betrayed the Sforzes twice. Uh, the Sforzes being the third most famous um, uh, Italian family after the Borgias and the uh, Medicis. And he probably killed both his wives, poisoned the first one and probably drowned the second one. Uh, the first wife was also his niece, which is yeah. lovely. <laughs> yeah. uh, <Wow. laughs> the the hmm. creepo of Rimini. Um, so Sigismondo started uh, hoarding ladders, apparently, because uh, he like... San Marino is a friggin' fortress. Like, it is just very hard to invade. It's a big set of castles. And if you're invading, they're going to see you coming. I heard there's, there's no flat piece of land within the entire, like, within the borders of San Marino. It's, it's, there's not a flat piece of land to be had. You're, you're essentially going up or downhill the entire time. Mm. Um, if you if you're trying to invade, which is 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 very far from ideal. There's an attempted invasion later on, and li- literally, they they. The guy is coming, they get lost on the way, and then morning happens, and they're just kind of standing in front of the castle with all the guys just pointing their arrows down at them. They're like, so what's the plan here, lads? And they, they run off, because that's, you know, that's what happens. You, you just can't get into this turkey. Anyway, so uh, Sigismondo started hoarding ladders, which is his statement of his intent, that's his big plan, in order to scale the walls of San Marino. But San Marino was tipped off by a local spy. 
Sigismund tried to use a spy to get into San Marino to kind of, you know, open the, the gates and stuff, but uh, the spy was caught and executed. Um, mm-hmm. San Marino, as a result of this, they, they saw how in danger they were from this guy, uh, this really, really good general who's very, very local and obviously wanted to invade. So they signed up with a super team. Oh, good, we haven't had a super team yet. Yeah, well, it's pretty, it's pretty super. It's uh, the King of Naples and also Milan, and also the Pope. So in terms of you know regional Italian powers, that's good, good super team. That's that's a that's pretty much the full the full set. Take that, Rimini. Bearing in mind, uh, he also betrayed the Sforzas twice as well. So I, I think they were pretty pretty supportive of the endeavor. Uh, Sigismund owed about forty thousand florins to Naples, and forty thousand is is a lot of anything, frankly. So Naples was also pretty pissed off. The war went very well. They they beat the flip out of Sigismund because you know they were almost the rest of Italy against this one guy. And uh, the Pope, uh, as a result, gave a lot of extra lands to San Marino. So San Marino's uh, territory expanded massively in this time. Uh, the territories of Monte Giardino, Paetano, Fiorentina, not the Fiorentina, which is Florence, but a, a small town called Fiorentina nearby. A, a, a little one. A little little Fiorentina. Um, and Serravale. Um, so all of these towns are now within the current boundaries and that's pretty much the kind of final setting of the boundaries of, of San Marino. It expanded during this period, but not really beyond this time. So at the end of the war, and this is again San Marino being San Marino, at the end of the war, Sigismund was left with only Rimini and five square miles of territory. And all of this territory was going to go to the Pope when Sigismund died. And then the Pope decided he wasn't even going to wait until then. He decided, actually, I'll have that now. Cool. So he basically sent uh, sent an army to take over this land. And <laughs> San Marino said, no, uh, that's not how it goes. Those aren't the rules. We're playing by the rules here. And San Marino fought the Pope's army, despite just having made nice with them, and beat the Pope's army in 1460. And the Malatestas were allowed to keep their lands in Rimini. Uh, but now actually owed their lands to San Marino because San Marino was so great. What? So San Marino had taken why, those why five towns. so nice? I don't know. But they, they now have won over their greatest enemy, the Malatestas. Uh, mm. And the Malatestas own all their prestige and land and Rimini to the, to the niceness of San Marino. Well played. So 1491, they update their statutes, take on the name Republic, remove the right of the church to declare war on their behalf possibly because they had just declared war in the church. Uh, and they did some kind of right-wing stuff like introducing the death penalty and banning foreigners, build that wall, etc. I can't not do it, I'm sorry. I can't help Trumpifying uh, ancient uh, Italian history. Um, he would fit in well in, in this in this era. You know, as in a tyrant. He'd be a, gr- he'd be a great Sigismondo. He'd be a, D- tyrant know. was just a style of leadership at the time. It was a strong yeah. man, big into the military, very bombastic, tried to take things over. That was what, hmm. like, Tyrannus tyrants. Moving on, we come up against Cesare Borgia, ah. uh, a name you will know if you know anything about history uh, and also uh, the Assassin's Creed series of games. Cesare Borgia is also the um, subject for Machiavelli's The Prince. Um, mm-hmm. So if something's described as Machiavellian, it's this guy. This is the guy who is the reason for the term Machiavellian. So he took over one small section of San Marino during his mad spate of taking bits of Italy over. Uh, he only held it for a very brief period of time, and eventually they kind of ran him out of there. He was known as a man of criminal virtue. 
just a little bit of background about Cesare Borgia because it's it's pretty it's pretty great. It's not super relevant to San Marino, but g- g- give me five seconds, it'll be worth it. So he was the illegitimate son of a pope. Um, he was a bishop at fifteen and became the first cardinal to resign. Pretty sure none of that's meant to happen. He took the pope's army and yeah. used it to grab as much of Italy as possible for himself. Mm-hmm. He was too cruel, even for his own men, and panicked his own people, who revolted. Uh, he eventually called for a reconciliation, and then imprisoned all of them. Right. He would die in 1507 while besieging an enemy. Uh, a bunch of enemy soldiers walked through his siege lines and wandered out, and he was so furious, he chased them on his own, uh, alone. And then when they realized it was just one guy chasing them, just happened to be Cesare Borgia, uh, they rounded on him and killed him and stole all his pants uh, and left him only with a red tile over his <laughs> Borgia peen. That is, the, that is the story. And apparently he was also wow. uh, riddled with syphilis as well. That was just <laughs> kicking him while he's down, you know? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Borgia took over a little bit of, of land of San Marino, but uh, only, I think, uh, for a few months of 1507. Uh, so it was a very minor invasion by San Marino. But, but, but given the given the integrity of San Marino throughout history we got to take the small invasions you know oh yeah and like it, they were pissed they were really like in, in the book I read it's, it's by a, a Samaranese historian and it's really like this guy can you believe this guy he took over down it's they're it's still Chesare talking about <laughs> like he took over a town you did well San Marino don't beat yourself up so in 1602 flashing forward about 50 years the Dukes of Urbino who were the protectors of uh, San Marino um, they were about to uh, die childless, the, the duke. Yeah, so this, this is an interesting an interesting one where, like, mm-hmm. they preempted the, the end of the line. Yep. These guys have been their protectors for so long, and the guy's kind of like, listen, no kids coming. Yep. We need to figure out the... We need to future-proof your uh, your country. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, like insulation for your house. Their, yeah. their insulation is political insulation. Yeah. Um, so what they do is they get the Pope on board. Hmm. I don't really have a lot of details about that, but they asked the Pope, can you can you be our, our sugar daddy? And he was like, yeah, right. And that was that. So now, they, now they're protected yeah, by the Pope. Yeah, and, and they signed the treaty quite a long time before he dies as well. Uh, it's uh, So, yeah, they, they signed it, I think, in 1602, hmm. and it kicks in in 1631, so 29 years later. So they're really, you know, this guy must have been very committed to not having any children. Uh, well i think it was like probably not for lack of trying necessarily maybe he he tried yeah yeah Uh, that was duke francesco maria the last of that line and the urbinos uh, are are kind of gone uh so a pope is helpful yeah having a pope in your pocket pope a little pocket pope okay so moving on a little bit um there is a view in, again, the book, which is a little bit opinionated about San Marino. It is the author's own history. They mentioned that in 1652, the council had kind of withered a little bit. Mm-hmm. San Marino's reputation for being well-governed uh, was starting to wane. Uh, uh, attendance and interest in the council and the issues of the state were not taken quite as seriously. A little bit of that is because they hadn't really, you know, they, they'd done a very good job of insulating themselves politically, so hadn't really had too many invasions or too many, you know, local aggressors. So they, they were kind of getting fat and sloppy, basically. They decided that there wasn't enough high-quality people in the country to populate the council. So they changed the numbers from 60 down to 45 because they felt that there, they couldn't find that extra 15 high-quality people to serve. That... 
and also uh, a rise in crime, uh, population and productivity both dropped. Uh, because of all these kind of uh, bad things happening in San Marino, uh, it begat what happened in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pietro Loli and Marino Belzoppi, who were both San Marino citizens, were arrested for calling for the restitution of the council back to 60. Um, so at the moment, there's only 45 in the council. They're saying it's, you know, essentially it's undemocratic. Too, it, it's oligarchic, I think was their yeah, criticism. It's, it's, it's pushing like towards just the like, big families are running everything. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were San Marino citizens, but Belzoppi himself, he was from a family who weren't an old San Marino family. He was a, a blow-in, basically. Uh-huh. Um, so they asked, they, they asked a local cardinal called Albaroni uh, to help out. So he took their case and first ordered their release. Um, San Marino, not big on extradition and so on, so they don't like listening to what other people say about their own their own prisoners. Uh, usually that's good because they're not going to imprison you, but in this case, they decided not to release their own prisoners. Mm-hmm. So the cardinal then set up a blockade around San Marino and tried to get the Pope involved to, again, take possession of San Marino due to it being uh, in such a terrible mess. The idea being that if, if the Pope didn't, then somebody else would, and San Marino would be lost to the Pope's influence. Clement the 22nd? The 22nd of his name. It's a lot of Clements. Pope Clement, wow. Pope Clement said no. He didn't want to get involved in that way and he respected San Marino too much. So instead, uh, local Cardinal Alberoni got the families of the imprisoned to sign letters uh, asking for San Marino to be passed to the Pope, uh, hoping to kind of get to it. Look, the locals all want it. Come on, Pope, just say the word. In 1739, the Cardinal was forbidden from going into San Marino as the Pope wanted to keep any transition friendly. So on October 17th, he went into San Marino, exactly as he had been forbidden to do. So he had like a rent-a-crowd of church supporters and some also, some people from Fiorentina, from the, the small Fiorentina that he brought with him. They were all applauding his entrance and the regent was kind of a bit spooked by this and he let him through the front gate. Uh, the cardinal took lodgings and told them the reason for his arrival would soon be apparent. It's always spooky. Yeah, you'll find out. It'll be terrific. <laughs> People are applauding him into the city and he's like, you, 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 I'm not going to tell you what's coming. I don't want to spoil the surprise. But... Exactly. He's also quoted as saying it was easy to make San Marino people know that they could not live in the heap of stones without the Pope's generosity and tolerance. What a bollocks. That so. is that's such an arsehole move. They're boiling stones for soup. Look at them. Um, You're only here because of me. Anyway, so he, he set up lodgings, told them all, don't worry, lads, uh, you'll all find out soon enough. Uh, that night, militias from Rimini and Vericchio, uh, they took the gates and San Marino belonged to him. Hmm. Um, on the 25th, he assembled the citizens in the cathedral and asked them to swear loyalty to the Pope. They refused and swore instead to San Marino. Can I quote to you here from the American History Review article written about this topic? Um, it's, it's, a little bit, it's a little bit romantic. The heroic Janji, who I think was one of the captain's regent, whose turn it was next, refused to swear. On the 1st of October, he said, I swore fidelity to my lawful prince, the Republic of San Marino. This oath I now confirm, and thus I swear. Yay! Cheers yeah. to the audience. The next two touched the book without a word. But the fifth, Giuseppe Onofri, mm. said that while he was ready to take the oath if the Pope absolutely insisted thereon, 
He would, if his holiness let him choose, swear to be faithful to San Marino. At these words, the church resounded with shouts of Viva la Repubblica! Aye, aye, aye! And another local hero, pointing to the head of Marinus, which is on the altar, I suppose, cried aloud, Long live San Marino! Long live liberty! (laughs) So it didn't go according to plan, I think, I think, in in this account, the bishop, or the cardinal just kind of exits the room at this point. (laughs) Yeah. Just start smoking. Stealth invasion has not, uh, yeah, has not worked out so well. I kind of get the feeling that, like, it, it almost could have gone another way. I, I don't think it was necessarily uh, that they had, you know, a conspiracy that way, that they had planned it. I think it was just because the first few people kind of were so against it, it, it emboldened everybody else. Because I, I read, a, like, a, a similar account from it from, from this book as well. And, uh, yeah, it, it was almost kind of organic, it seemed. Yeah. They really liked San Marino a lot more than the Pope, and then they eventually said that. And that was pretty straightforward. Yep. Well, I think Onofre in particular is quite respectful about it. Like, listen, I, I like the Pope, but I'd really yeah. prefer if he <laughs> So the Cardinal lost his nut at this, uh, and he ordered the pillage of the, the people's homes who had not sworn to the Pope. Uh, he left on the 29th for Ravenna, and he put his governor in charge. Uh, I have in my, my notes here, Deus ex popery. So this was a huge mess. When the Pope heard about all of this that was happening, including the fact that he had forbidden the Cardinal from entering the city, and then he mm-hmm. entered the city, and then there was a big mess, the Pope was like, well, I freaking told you, didn't I? So he basically got rid of the Cardinal. He sent a different Cardinal, and three months later, the Republic was restored uh, in February. So basically, the Pope said, no harm, no foul. San Marino, San Marino. Uh, my, my Cardinal was very much mistaken. My, my, my apologies. It's all cool. This unfortunate incident we're going to reinvigorate their um, yeah. republicanness and they restore the Council of the Sixty yeah, by themselves, kind of quietly and don't admit <laughs> Which was probably. the thing that caused the, the controversy thing. in the yeah. first place. <laughs> they imprisoned the first guys who said that. Yep. You bloody blow-ins. Alright, uh, I think it's high time for another break. What do we think? Yes. That went on for a Middle Ages. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. I'm angry. I'm so angry. Joe, do you want to kick us off moving into the uh, early 1800s? Actually, the very end of the 1700s, when yet another potential tyrant uh, enters the scene. So having done away with the Borgia and, and the, the, the um, rapacious cardinal, General Napoleon Bonaparte is sweeping across northern Italy with all the republican revolutionary fervour of a man who will later crown himself emperor. Um, <laughs> It's all branding, Joe. That's what's important. Yep. But at this point, Napoleon is the greatest general of the French Republic. Mm -hmm. And conquering left, right and centre. And he comes right up to the edge of the Romagna region and is camped at Pesaro, which is... I looked it up on Google Maps. It's about an hour's drive from San Marino. Okay, right. And I'd imagine the San Marinesi were, were quaking in their boots as the greatest general of the age was camped down the road however he liked republics at this stage and mm-hmm. had been founding them as he went that 
Cisalpine Republic and the, the various republics centred around Bologna and Rome and Genoa. Mm-hmm. And so when he was introduced to the concept of San Marino, he, uh, he said, Conservons-la comme un enchantillon de république, which I don't really know how to translate enchantillon, but like, like let's save it as a as like the, the pattern or the model of a of a republic, uh, like as a sort of a, look at these guys, they know what they're at. A republic um, museum. Yeah, it kind of, uh, it would be a pity to, to crush it, I think, <laughs> is his, his point of view. And he sent his emissary, uh, Gaspard Monge, famous for both being a mathematician and a good friend of Napoleon's. All right. Um, and he went up the mountain and visited kind of unexpectedly and he gave them a speech about how wonderful liberty was and how they were mimicking the model of Athens and Thebes and Rome and they were wonderful and he brought fraternal greetings from the French Republic and mm. the San Marinese were like, okay, this is good. This is, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the best case scenario. And he noted when returning to uh, Napoleon both the Mountain Republic's hospitality and its inaccessibility. Um, <laughs> so both may have been factors. In the decision to... Uh, nice place, but very difficult to get to. Yeah. Is the TripAdvisor review. <laughs> Four stars. One of the key statesmen at the time was uh, Antonio Onofri, who was the descendant of the previous Onofri, who mm-hmm. who who made the, that speech in the church. Mm-hmm. He is considered kind of a father of the nation type character. He really was very good at diplomacy during this tricky period. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Napoleon offered to expand their territories, he wisely said, oh, we're good. Thanks. We're, we're happy. We're happy with what we have, which uh, worked out for the best when all of Europe went to war with Napoleon. In the thing I read, it said that Monge offered them grain, guns and mm-hmm. land. And they accepted yep. only the first two once they were assured that they hadn't been stolen off somebody else and yes. somebody wouldn't come to them looking for them. Yeah. And the cannons never turned up. Uh, All right. Okay. They are either forgotten about or, or rethought or something, but uh, they they got the grain and were happy. They were happy with the grain. Again, from from two quaint republics. This somewhat patronising uh, 1915 book about Andorra and San Marino said the Napoleonic gifts are said to have never been sent. San Marino only desired to be left unmolested. That's all I'd ever desired, Joe. They briefly <laughs> abolished orders of nobility for three years and then brought them back uh, when when republicanism became less less in vogue. And during the kind of Napoleonic era, Onofri developed trade relationships with these new republics of Rome and also with Chile. He met uh, Emperor Napoleon in Milan as he was crowned the King of Italy, mm-hmm. which I didn't realise happened, but Napoleon was also King of Italy. And that worried them a little bit, but, but uh, Napoleon's brother-in-law, the future King of Naples, um, reassured him that everything was fine and they'd be good friends and trade and be happy. So, uh, yeah, they were allowed to continue to be a little republic even as the Great Republic mm-hmm. became a family business. And then in 1815, at the Congress of Vienna, after Napoleonic Wars, its independence was recognised, uh, mm-hmm. making it the last republic on the peninsula. And I think, Mark, you can tell us what happened to Italy after this, or how Italy became an Italy. Well, look, I'm not going to get into the whole thing because no, no. uh, it's a it's a mega war and it's many, 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 it's many mega wars. Actually, I actually had to look up where this scene happened in the context of all of the wars because I did because yeah. I was like, oh, 1850s and 1860s, and so this was in 1849. Mm-hmm. And the guy we're talking about is Giuseppe Garibaldi. Garibaldi is largely seen as as the guy who who made Italy via many, many um, uh, military Tiny conquests. Wars. 
yeah, yeah. lots and lots of revolutions. He, he also, we, we, we met him in Uruguay, if you remember. Yes, because I was looking at his flipping we? uh, Wikipedia yeah. and it, it says Uruguay. And I think maybe he was in Chile as well. Definitely Uruguay and Brazil. He did a stint mm. in, in, in that part of the world, yeah, getting he, he military experience, helping, helping Brazil secede from Portugal. Ah. Um, and so Garibaldi was a Republican, but eventually yeah. Italy ends up with a king because of practicalities, but a constitutional monarch. So, so he, he wins in some front. So what happened here was essentially um, because San Marino had established themselves as a place where people could could run to for, for refuge from, I guess, from uh, whatever form of Italian tyranny was nearby, but also, I guess, Napoleon and a few other bits and pieces. San Marino's uh, independence had been recognized by everybody. So people kind of exploited that a little bit. When they were in trouble, they would run to San Marino. Garibaldi, it seems, was no different. Mm-hmm. Garibaldi was being chased by the better armed Austrian army. So the Austrian army was, I guess, in Italy at that time for some reason. And I think they had another war about 20 years later where the yeah, Austrians yeah, yeah. came into Italy so, as well. Like the Habsburg Austrians were, were, mm. were like big in the north and they were allied with the Pope, I think. Oh, that would make a lot of sense then. Yeah. And Garibaldi's so, running away from Rome at this stage. Yeah. Trying to get so, Venice. Yeah, he's, he's all over the place. Anyway. He eventually was involved with Venice, but... So he, he was being chased by the Austrians and he came near to San Marino and he was asked not to enter. Uh, so he entered uh, with 2,000 men and went to the regent uh, who was named Belzoppi. That seems to be a running tradition. I, yeah, please don't complicate our like, lives. Uh, I think we're going to see at least one more incident of this in this episode where people are like, please don't come into San Marino. And they're like, nah, I'm coming in anyway. The, the regent was called Belzoppi, which is one of the names of those two guys who were imprisoned earlier on. So clearly that family came back into uh, favour. Exactly. So they were asking uh, for food and shelter. So, you know, they offered food and shelter if uh, Garibaldi laid down his arms with the words, mm-hmm. Welcome, refugee. I have prepared rations for your soldiers and prepared shelter and care for the wounded. I accept cheerfully the task you have given me because I am glad to fulfil a hospitable role on this occasion. But you, General, you must counterbalance it. You must spare this country the disasters and ruins of war. So on the 31st of July, 1849, Garibaldi basically said, lads, the jig's up, get out of here. Also, uh, go Italy. Italy will be, Italy's the dream. There will be an Italy, just not today. The Italy that was scheduled was, will be replaced by a replacement Italy in about 20 years time. So just. And then then when, when you, you know, and three Italy's come at once, if you wait on. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) This isn't the Italy I wanted. Maybe it's the Italy I deserve. Uh, he said, return to your homes, but remember that Italy must not remain in servitude and in shame. Garibaldi saw that the Austrians were not to be trifled with and he, they would not stop until they had him. So mm-hmm. he left quietly in the night with 250 of his personal guard and he went for the sea. So I guess towards Rimini and then up, I think, towards Venice. Yeah, I think that was his destination. But, yes, but he, I think he was everywhere he was in between was Austrian controlled. So he was going to Venice. San Marino handed all of his weapons to the Austrians, who were happy to get them. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the weapons were stolen. And so San Marino had to pay back that money to the church because the, the weapons were stolen from the, the, the Vatican oh, armies. Yeah. Um, so they also had to provide passports and money to some of Garibaldi's men because they had no passports or money and were refusing mm-hmm. to leave. Um, so this was kind of expensive and kind of pissed off the Pope because the Pope had this big section of Italy that kept 
harboring fugitives from him. Mm-hmm. Even some of uh, the kind of anti-church uh, people had started to hang out in San Marino. Was getting Who a reputation Garibaldi as sort of a would be as well. Oh yeah, Garibaldi as well. But I'm talking about more like philosophers and writers ah. and so on started setting up camp in, in San Marino as well. So it was getting a reputation of being eh, a bit of a bit of a problem. Um, so the Austrians, who, as you say, were allied with the Pope, they tried to have a naval blockade, uh, which is strange because um, they weren't coastal, what? but yeah. it's, I guess, why it wasn't successful. It's it's a landlocked country, yeah. so you how just, does that I think work? they were using the port. In Rimini, you put a ship in, in uh, Urbino. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think because they were using the port of Rimini uh, okay. so frequently, <laughs> it was like kind of a blockade of, of them, but not, you know in a rubbish, not successful way. In 1854, the Pope convinced Tuscany to go after all these political types, but San Marino got the backing from Emperor Napoleon III. And that meant that no one was going to be getting into San Marino anytime soon. That that kind of settled that, really. But I think you could say it paid off, this all of this expense of feeding, feeding Garibaldi's folk, because, you know, oh, when Italy enough. was united, 1862, they signed a mm-hmm. treaty of friendship with San Marino recognizing its independence because they were nice. Yep, because they were nice and weren't jerks about it. Everything kind of worked out in the long run. A lesson there for us all. Me especially. I didn't want to say. (laughs) (laughs) And and Luke, there was one more brush with fame for this uh, little known place. There was. Spring of 1861, a guy that most of our listeners will not have heard of Mm. called Abraham Lincoln. Very obscure. (laughs) Comes to power in in America. He's inaugurated as as U.S. president through his rise through the political echelons of of the United States. has obviously Mm -hmm. uh, become like a famous proponent of republicanism. And the government of San Marino decides to write this guy a letter. They're like, we like this guy. We, you know, he seems to share a lot of our values, this uh, American upstart. It's a Republican fan mail. Yeah. They're like, hey, we like what you're, what you're saying and we like what you're doing. So they write him a letter in what, what was described as perfect Italian on one side and imperfect but clear English on the other. <laughs> Uh, a letter that proposes an alliance between the two nations and offering uh, Lincoln an honorary San Marino citizenship, which I think in in a lot of cases would be um, lost in his inbox. Um, but uh, Lincoln, as it turns out, was a fan. He decided to accept the offer and he uh, made them a very gracious reply. You have kindly averted the trial through which this republic, referring to America, is now passing. It is one of deep import. It involves the question of whether the representative republic, extended and aggrandized so much as to be safe against foreign enemies, can save itself from the dangers of domestic faction. I have faith in a good result. Mm -hmm. So this was like shortly ahead of the American Civil War. So that's what he was referring to. And clearly was a fan of the, you know, the oldest constitutional republic in the world. I guess not many of our listeners will know, or I, I had no idea that uh, Lincoln was an honorary uh, citizen mm-hmm. of San Marino. So there you go. Just just to mention a, a little side thing, as this was at the start of the Civil War, it may not have been obvious to everybody, you know, what we now see as obvious was that the North was always going to win because they had so, so much industrial power and yada, yada, yada. So it might have been, they were like, look, if it all turns bad, Mr. Lincoln, you can always live here if you like. We, we, we'll always like you, kind of a thing. True enough. Um, but the other thing I thought was um, actually in Manchester, seemingly un- inexplicably, there is a huge statue of Abraham Lincoln in the center of Manchester in the UK where I oh. used to live. 
There really? is a huge statue in a pretty prominent place. Wow. And the, the reason is that um, he basically um, kind of damaged the Manchester economy by stopping the export of cotton from the south because uh, yes. it was a naval blockade and it ruined Manchester. But Manchester still stay, stayed broadly supportive of him because, you know, anti-slavery and so on, um, workers' rights. And the, as a result, uh, Abe, Abe Lincoln said... Uh, Manchester, you're great. You suffered in this war, and I thank you for your suffering and for your your good attitudes. I don't have the exact quotation in front of me, but yeah, th- just to say that like a- Abe Lincoln was a global figure. Sure, uh, everybody in the world uh, knew about Abraham Lincoln, who was interested in in, in statehood and republicanism uh, and freedom. Uh, he 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 was big all over. People forget that like he basically not single handedly, but was involved in founding the Republican Party. Mm. So mm-hmm. it, it isn't crazy that these ancient republicans will, will be like, "Oh, cool! America's doing republicanism. That's nice." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's our thing. That's- I, I, I just have another quick quote here from the the beginning of his letter, which says, um, "Great and good friends," as he called the the Samaritans. Although your dominion is small, your state is nevertheless one of the most honored in all of history. Mm. It has, by its experience, demonstrated the truth. So full of encouragement to the friends of humanity that government founded on Republican principles is capable of being so administered as to be secure and enduring. And those words are, are still relevant today. I mean, mm-hmm. um, obviously, his his republic still stands, but so does so does San Marino. So well, at the time of recording, at least the uh, Lincoln's Republic. Uh, yes, yes. At the time of recording, we can't speak to the next uh, couple months before it's might come out. <laughs> But uh, yeah, uh, we we can we can hope. Yeah. Oh, there's a, a tweet just come through from uh, Donald Trump, guys. I think he's gonna nuke San Marino. Oh, oh no, <laughs> little mountain men, <laughs> these little mountain jerks. <laughs> anyway. All right. I think uh, I think that's a good opportunity for another break. Okay. You didn't think you'd make it through a whole episode without us mentioning Patreon at least once. But hey, we're nearly into the 20th century, so that's it's pretty good. This is just a gentle reminder that as of season three, we are now asking listeners who are so inclined to support us on patreon.com slash 80 days podcast. You can pick from four tiers of support, getting things from a shout out at the end of the show all the way up to helping us pick the season finale each season and getting personalised postcards from around the world. If supporting this podcast is something you'd be interested in doing, go over to patreon.com slash 80 days podcast. We really appreciate your support. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Moving swiftly on into uh, the 20th century, San Marino was... In the midst of, a, I guess, an industrial revolution, experiencing uh, economic depression, uh, there was a, a, you know, booming birth rate, and there was also, you know, the uh, agriculturalism was in decline, and industrial development was only just getting underway. So there were a lot of people that migrated away from uh, San Marino at this time. As a result, there are now small pockets of San Marinese all over the world, uh, oh. including you know, around Italy, obviously, but also in the US mm. and Germany and Austria, uh, France, Argentina, cool. as far as I could tell, it was one of the only periods, one of the only major periods where a lot of people mm. left the country uh, was in the early 1900s. And uh, it's estimated there are around 15,000 Samaranese descendants living 
elsewhere in the world. It's not a lot, but it's a lot compared to the population. Considering their current population is what, 30,000? Yeah, yeah 35,000. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah. Their economy around this time was mostly quarrying stone, exporting wood, rearing cattle. And cultivating yeah. chestnuts and grain. I actually read uh, that um, it was one of the so, things that yeah, was not... mentioned about San Marino that they, their their poverty was an armor that they, they didn't really, they weren't a very wealthy state ever. They just had like a little bit of wine, a little bit of meat, a little bit of grain, like you know quarries, bit of wood, enough to get enough to keep enough going, to keep going yeah. themselves, and a little enough bit to also to trade, by. but not huge amounts. But not enough to be troubled by people wanting to invade the place necessarily. The, the only thing that they had was a big ass fortress that was mm-hmm. the only thing they had a fortress mm-hmm. on a mountain so it's like hospitable but inaccessible yeah but i mean like it's it's like okay who, who do i rob very wealthy guy or very poor guy with very big gun you know it's it's pretty yeah pretty pretty straightforward <laughs> maths there in 1906, uh, there was a pretty big change to the constitution, like a reaffirming of the constitution, mm. where 800 of the approximately 1,000 heads of family throughout the state met to decide the political future of San mm. Marino. So this is the Orengo. Yeah, they reconstituted the Orengo as a result of this meeting. They restored their own power, the power of the people, to elect the Grand and General Council, the uh, which is still the case today. Essentially just made the place a lot more uh, democratic. Mm-hmm. distributed votes evenly among the city population and the rural population mm-hmm. and uh, made sure that, you know, all the citizens had a voice in how the place was governed. I, I think it moved from sort of rich families only to all men having mm-hmm. a vote. Yeah. yeah. Which was kind of in line with what was going on in the rest of Europe. Maybe a little bit later. but Yeah. So then in 1915, we have Italy declaring war on Austria-Hungary. Mm-hmm. And San, Mar- San Marino, as you would think is, uh, I think most people would agree, is 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 wise, declares its neutrality. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, uh, I don't think I don't think a, a place this small wants to be fighting in any any major conflicts. Uh, but Italy is not particularly pleased about um, San Marino remaining neutral. I mean, there's uh, this will this is kind of a running theme, mm-hmm. I think, through the both of the world wars is that you know Italy is not. It's it's kind of a an annoying thing to have a, a pocket of your country that is Isn't your country. Yeah. neutral. It would be. It's understandable. So it's it's not ideal. But the real question is, how are the spies going to get in? Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's what Italy was worried Just about: spy. is that uh, San Marino could ha- harbor Austrian spies in you know within Italy, mm. and that they would intercept communication through um, telegraph lines and that right. that sort of thing. So. Um, Italy decides to establish a base for its uh, National Guard. It says, we, we want to post our own people within your city walls. And San Marino's like, yeah, no, that didn't go so well for us in the past. Yeah. So, uh, no thanks. And Italy was just like, okay, well, then we're cutting all lines of communication. No information is going to flow through San Marino. So even if there are enemy spies within the walls, they're, they're not going to hear anything. Right. So At they least switched off the Wi-Fi. They switched off the Wi-Fi. There's a couple of very small notes from World War One. Two groups of 10 volunteers from San Marino fought with the Italians. Mm-hmm. So they volunteered um, to join the Italian side in the, in the conflict. Uh, one group established a field hospital for Italian soldiers, uh, which later caused the Austria-Hungary, uh, Austro-Hungarian forces to suspend diplomatic relations with San Marino, mm-hmm. over 10 guys, 
yeah, but apart from that, there's not really much uh, of note in World War mm-hmm. One. They they maintain their neutrality and they yeah they're pretty far yeah. from the lines, so that's not hard. yeah pretty far away from most of the major conflicts. So. And, and also, Italy changed sides halfway through that war, so it was a good thing that they did stay out of it. It would have been it's a very extraordinarily messy war yeah. for Italy. During the interwar period, then San Marino was still very much transitioning from being um, an agrarian society into being an industrialized society. Tensions began to rise between it and fascist Italy from around the 1920s onwards. Mm-hmm. In 1921, there's a guy called Carlo Bossi, uh, who was an Italian fascist sympathizer who was was in San Marino at the time and was murdered by communist sympathizers, oh, right. which the Italians were not particularly happy about. Hmm. And they, a bunch of uh, these sort of from what i could from what i can gather kind of gangs uh called squadrismos okay. who are like groups of uh, fascists from around rural italy they kind of like would <laughs> they sound you nice. know um loosely uh, form militias i suppose Great. you know threaten to retaliate against san marino yeah uh and the government had to apply to italy for reinforcements in order to you know keep the peace and protect itself right yeah eventually and then over the course of the next year or so um, I mean, San Marino had tried very hard to resist becoming a fascist mm-hmm. country. Well, the, the reforms in 1906 were were very much left-wing reforms. Mm. They were kind of workers' rights reforms. Exactly, and trying to trying to be as democratic as, as, as they possibly could be. But in the early 1920s, the San Marinese fascist party came to power, quashed all socialist ideologies within mm-hmm. uh, the city walls, and ceased the printing of socialist newspapers. It became... At that time, a one-party state, although independents were still allowed to run for government, still made up the majority of the Grand and General Council. But they weren't a party, so they couldn't be... Yeah, Yeah. so they were all... They weren't necessarily working together, but at least the fascists were not in the majority. Um, Can I just mention here, because I I don't see any other episode where we're going to mention one of my favourite word history stories, that the, the word fascist is obviously... It's not a, people most associated with with Nazis and Germany, but it's, it is an Italian word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it comes from quite a nice thing mm-hmm. from the past, which is the 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 fasces, which is a symbol fascists still use today, but, but it goes back to the Roman Republic. And a fasces is, is an axe wrapped in a bundle of sticks, and it symbolizes strength. Mm-hmm. And that was a symbol of, of Roman magistrates. And this symbol of strength obviously got hijacked by um, fascists later to, uh, you know, together we are strong and we'll take on the Freemasons and the Jews or whoever was. All right, Joe, calm down. All right, God. That's that's where the word. As soon as we turn the mic on, you're on on the stonemasons. Jesus. Give it a rest. (laughs) Um, So just to mention that, that this is a local word and a local ideology that they were swept up Mm -hmm. in. All right. So within the Samaranese fascist party, there were two major power players, Balducci and Gozi. And in 1932, Balducci's faction started a, a newspaper called La, La Voce di Titano. The Voice of Titano? Yeah, the, yeah. the Voice of the Mountain, yeah. And the, just the following year, Balducci was accused of plotting a coup against uh, Gozi, who had been appointed as one of the two heads of state or one of the two, one of the have heads of yeah. state. I suppose, was accused of plotting a coup and was arrested by the Italian authorities after fleeing to Rome. 
and him and his followers were then purged from the party and sentenced to hard labor nice. in 1934. Although the punishment was apparently never carried out, but I, I, I couldn't find out more about what happened to him, but I assume it was not good. They didn't adopt the anti-Jewish laws that Italy did uh, in 1938, mm -hmm. but that was mostly because Jews. they didn't have any Jews. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, I mean, you know, you can count that as a, as a point in their favor, but... Um, you know, it didn't really make much of a difference anyway. Right. So, yeah, during World War II, the uh, country once again remained neutral, even though it was obviously fascist. And um, I assume the gov the ruling party would have sympathized with the direction that Italy was going uh -huh. and with the Axis powers. But they remained neutral, even though the San Marini's fascist party remained in power until 1943. They never officially declared war. In 1940... There were some press press reports that claimed that San Marino had declared war on Britain, okay. but it was denied. And then in 1944, it became close to being dragged into the war after the RAF mistakenly bombed the yep. city, uh, having been informed that it had been overrun by German forces, and that killed 63 people. And the government after the war admitted that its information was wrong and that, you know, the reports that it had received had been erroneous. But, you know, that really didn't do much to uh, to help the situation. And then after reiterating its neutrality, the San Marinese government put up signs at border crossings to instruct uh, German soldiers not to enter their territory. Right. Just sort of like, hey, uh, neutral, you're enter entering neutral territory right now, and we're if, not. If only, if only the Netherlands had thought of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I assume they, this worked out. They, they um, did, but they put up the signs in Dutch, not German. Yeah. Uh, we thought it was close enough, you know. Yeah, it did not work out that well, Joe. Um, okay, just a month later, ah. a German commander uh, in the area named Major Gunther. Uh, wrote to the San Marinese <laughs> government. Uh, pretty brazen, actually. He said, "You're essentially said their their sovereignty would not be respected in the event that troops and transport needed to pass through the area. So essentially, we we won't uh, we won't purposely invade your mountain, but we're not going to go around it either. We're not so, going to go out of our way to mess with you. But if we need to mess with you at all, we'll just do it. Yes. So and then just three days later, German officer turned up at the city walls with an order to requisition two buildings for a military hospital. And San Marinese were like, uh, didn't you read the signs? Um, as far as I can tell, they, they stalled him and in the meantime sent letters to Hitler, uh, Mussolini and a bunch of high-ranking Italian diplomats. Uh, Mussolini wrote them back and said he would, he would try to talk to Hitler, um, <laughs> try to intervene. But... That didn't work out so well. Yeah. In September then, just a month later, German forces occupied the territory as part of what was called the Gothic Line, which was essentially a line that stretched all the way uh, from east to west across the Italian peninsula right. okay. and was meant to defend Italy from the invading Allied forces. On 17th of September, the 4th Indian Infantry Division attacked the forces holding the hills just across the San Marinese border. Mm and gained control of the hills over the next couple of days and allied forces pushed into the city itself and on the 20th of september the city of san marino was captured that was the conclusion to the battle of san marino and part of a larger invasion of italy right. okay. as far as i could tell it came quite early on in the invasion of italy so it was one of the one of the earlier places that was taken and again had not declared war on anyone at any point so and then <laughs> I'm going to read this line verbatim from the from the Wikipedia page because I thought it was great. 
uh, on the 21st, so the day after the battle concluded. They said on the 21st, the local defense forces were enlisted to help mop up straggling German troops. And the 4th Indian Division pressed onwards through a heavy gale and passed out of the country. They moved in, so, fought a battle, and then was, you I mean, good, local you defense good? forces okay, uh, enlisted to mop up Germans. If yeah, you see anyone yeah. called Gunther, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Major Gunther. <laughs> I'm from Sweden. Yeah. Um. Uh, San Marino gave shelter and asylum to more than 100,000 evacuees from various areas around San Marino during that invasion, mm-hmm. despite the fact that its population was only 15,000 at the time. So is 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 one of those stories it kind of reminded me of the one we talked about in uh, newfoundland gander was it gander airport mm-hmm. oh yeah you know yeah. where all the 747s the yeah. jets were diverted on september 11th yeah, yeah on september 11th i mean this is obviously very different but it's it's, it's uh, yeah they, once again they were friendly yeah they were friendly and they were just like yeah we'll, we'll we'll do what we can for you guys this neutral pocket in the middle of the war they took in as many evacuees as, as it sounds like they could uh, just on, on the evacuees, I had a little bit of detail on that as well. What they did was they actually housed them in the rail tunnel wow. between San Marino and Rimini. There, ah. there was a newly built rail tunnel and they just got rid of the trains and set people up in there uh, to keep them sheltered from any bombing or fighting. Sure, that's, that's a good bomb shelter. And then they, uh, they apparently had gotten a bunch of uh, electric ovens and so on. They, they'd been you know, uh, advancing their technology, same as everybody else. But the power was cut around the, sep- the 8th of September, so about two weeks or so before the invasion by the Allies, and they didn't have any mills or transport. So they had to actually uh, reopen the old wood ovens that they had used for hundreds of years before just to make the bread to keep the people wow. in the huh. tunnel uh, alive. So they were very, 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 very close to being totally out of food for those people before the Allies uh, took uh, wow. around them. San Marino, after the war ended, petitioned the British government to pay 732 million lira, mm-hmm. which is about, uh, as far as I can tell, is about 300,000 pounds in wartime compensation for the occupation of the city and the damage that was caused by the battle. But they refused because they said that the German forces had occupied the city first and Fair. that they were just ousting uh, the Germans from from the city. But... They did eventually agree to pay around eighty thousand pounds for mm, the damages okay. caused by the bombing that I mentioned earlier, which uh, killed around sixty people. Mm-hmm. Grand. So, so Luke, Luke, earlier you talked about how how sometimes Samarina is a bit behind the times. I would say that this next brief chapter, they're well ahead of their yeah. times. When in nineteen forty-five they went fascism, not so much, and immediately elected a communist government. Uh, wow. Okay. A bit of an about turn, yeah. Exactly. Well, when you only have 60 people in your parliament, it's pretty easy to, <laughs> um, to, to get over 31, you know. So this is the first country in the West to elect a communist government. They don't seem to have been super communist. Um, okay. Like, they nationalised the three local pharmacies. <laughs> okay. And that was the, the extent men. of... It'll never work. <laughs> the mad men. It'll never Because there was no... Wow. There was no industry. All right. And they were the only communist republic west of the Iron Curtain. All right. And they they ruled they ruled until 1957 with no real anything. Yeah. Acrimony. I couldn't couldn't find much by way of what they did or what they achieved. They just mm-hmm. were communist. Um, so that was great. But then in in 1957, this this constitutional crisis occurred called the Fatti de Rovereta. Okay. Which is the I suppose the Rovereta affair. 
And what happened? It was a bit. It's a bit of a strange one. So they had a, a thirty-five person majority in this council of sixty, the grand and the grand and general council, which was a coalition between the communist party and moderate socialists. And five of the moderate socialists, led by Alvar Casali, started to get cold feet about the whole communism thing, when the communist government refused to condemn Soviet actions in the Hungarian Revolution. I did a little bit of reading on, but it seems like the Soviets were pretty heavy-handed at putting down a revolution in Hungary. In Insanely 56. so. I was just in Budapest a few months ago, and yeah, ah, it, yeah. Was, it was biblical. It was really graphically like it, awful. It brought about a lot of international condemnation, yeah. and and the Communist Party of San Marino wasn't, wasn't doing the condemning. And the socialists were kind of uncomfortable about that. Like, we like left-wing stuff. We just think that maybe the Soviet Union's a bit evil. Yeah. And so in April, these five guys left and formed the Independent Democratic Socialist Party, leaving a perfect 30-30 split and legislative gridlock in the council. Great. <laughs> Lucas psyched. Yep. <laughs> you, you love legislative gridlock, right? Yeah. Oh, jeez. great. Big fan. <laughs> the captain's regent were communists, of course. They just avoided calling the council until the 19th of September when they were pretty much had to have elections to replace themselves on the 1st of October. So they really ran straight up to the line on when they could have the next meeting. At this point, one communist defected going over to the opposition and the leader of the Christian Democrats, Federico Bigi, described in, in one book I, I read as a portly school teacher. <laughs> uh, he realised he had a majority and planned to elect two non-communist captains regent on the 1st of October. Here's where it gets interesting. As is still common with communist parties, all of the councillors had to sign undated resignation letters when they took office. That was one of the party rules. And so the leaders of the communist socialist parties deployed all 35 of their resignation letters, including for the guys who had left the party. Okay. And so 35 people resigned from the council, leaving it without a quorum meaning it had to be dissolved and they had to have new elections, but they would be held after the regent should have been replaced and they couldn't be replaced because there was no council to replace them and you have this kind of constitutional kerfuffle where it's not clear who's the government anymore. Obviously the five guys who'd been resigned involuntarily... These are the burger people, right? Sorry, never mind, bad joke. The guys who'd, uh, who'd been resigned involuntarily weren't happy about the whole thing. And it was branded as a coup. This is a wonderful account I read of some tourists in the square taking pictures of the main square in town. And some guys come up and start shouting that it's a coup and trying to get into the palace and police making them go away. And some tourist turns to a shopkeeper and goes, what's happening here? He's like, oh, just some family trouble. And one of the one of the Christian Democrats is going, no, it's a coup, it's a coup. So it was a pretty low scale, like a low key coup. But um, when you're trying to convince people in the midst of your coup that your coup is happening, it's yeah. it's it's probably <laughs> yeah. not super effective. Like, um, so the communists locked themselves in the in the palace of the public, which is kind of the government building, and the the police protected them, and the other side went off to Rovereta on the border uh, to a disused factory, barricaded themselves in and declared themselves the provisional government because now the captains were expired and out of office. So there you've got this 
factory-based government and this <laughs> city-based government. And I, I don't know whose side you should be on. <laughs> but Italy recognised the provisional government um, and defended their stronghold, which had three of its walls bordered Italy. So they defended the three walls that weren't in San Marino and sneaked in some World War II rifles. And also some of the militias that formed to fight for the provisional government had had muskets, ceremonial muskets that they took to defend liberty with. On the 11th of October, the communist government gave up. The provisional government elected new captains, held new elections, and as part of their reforms brought in women's suffrage, which is nice. All right. Yeah, so that's what happened. Yeah, there's some wonderful newsreel footage. We'll put a link to it in the show notes, which is just like lads marching around with muskets, wearing normal kind of 1950s clothes. What happened after this is like the Communist Party goes into opposition for a while, then eventually they return to government. And in the end, they were in a coalition with the Christian Democrats, which is ridiculous. Like they're they're arch nemeses. Wow. Eventually, they just... That doesn't sound like a, a, a good marriage. No. And in 1990, they stopped being communist because the bur- the wall falls and Russia, coll- you know, Soviet Union collapses and yeah, so on. Yeah, we've seen that before. And they become um, the Democratic Progressive Party. Sounds much nicer. Mirror, yeah, mirroring the, the post-Cold War changes in Italy. So that's uh, that's kind of your late 20th century. Um, you know, they get women of the vote, men of the vote, everyone has the vote, and nothing much has changed. Yeah. Uh, just on on the the women voting thing, uh, in 1981 they elected their first female captain regent, and from April to October 2017, so quite recently, they're the first two concurrent female captains. All right. well, and in a in a way that I think is cheating, they they claim to have the most female heads of state Lame. ever. But when you have four people a yeah. year, because they elect them every six it months, does help. yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, in pairs, so. That that is technically true, but I think. Uh, all right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll we'll try to wrap all this up after that. How's that? Nice one. Okay, so in 2008, Monte Titano or Mount Titano in the center of San Marino, the old city, were designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That's something that's actually benefited them hugely because... I think, as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, their economy nowadays is mostly based on tourism. Yeah. So they have a lot of people visiting. Up to three million people um, visit the place every year, mm-hmm. even though it, you know, it's it's such a tiny, tiny territory, and there's only thirty thousand people, like permanent residents, or just over thirty thousand, like it's three million. One hundred times years. the uh, population, pretty much. Mm-hmm. So, I did discuss this with an Italian colleague, and she mentioned that people go there to shop. Uh, Italians really? go there all the time to shop because sales tax is nothing compared to ah, Nice. So okay. that's a big nice. part of the, the local tourism trade is shopping, shopping, shopping. 
uh, yeah, it doesn't have any real agriculture anymore. I mean, very little agriculture anymore. And it doesn't have any minerals or any real resources. All of its electrical power is transferred from Italy, All right. who is obviously the, their largest trading partner. And one of the big things mm-hmm. that I, I read a lot about is uh, postage stamps. Apparently, they're they're yes, like yes. their postage stamps are very highly sought after for some reason. Uh, I guess because they're quite rare because they're because rare. such a small place. But it's the uh, same so story as uh, like, Liechtenstein. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so people yeah, these who small like states, collecting uh, stamps. These small European states, because they're so rare, they actually spend a lot of time and a lot of effort on uh, uh, releasing new batches. Um, banking is also pretty big. Uh, it's a big industry. Shocking. Mm. You're telling me a microstate has a lot of banking? And in 2002, San Marino replaced the embarrassing <laughs> Italian lira with the euro. So they now use the euro. Um, yeah. Ah. In San Marino, even though I don't think they're part of the EU, are they? Are they part? Of, they're not an EU member. Nope. No, no, no. But, yeah, but Gosh, they have. I mean. they, they do use the euro. Just on economy, while we're chatting about it, their GDP per capita is 10th in the world, according to the IMF, which puts them between Hong Kong and Switzerland, which is a pretty nice bit of real estate to be in. Mm-hmm. As of June 2017, according to Reuters, their banks are burdened with 1.8 billion euros worth of bad loans equal to 113% of San Marino's annual gross domestic product. So they actually have a big banking crisis at the moment. Um, They're not really sure what to do with all these, this this terrible debt. And they apparently are also kind of a bit of a big deal in in garment manufacturing, or at least the garment industry. I found one large company that deals with uh, uh, clothing distribution. We're called like, I don't know, inter-jeans or like super flannel or some damn thing. But they, they work with Ben Sherman and Super Dry and a bunch of other uh, other brands. Uh, so they seem to be like a middleman kind of company, but uh, not really much in terms of manufacturing there, as far as I can see. And obviously no mining or not much farming or anything either. They yeah, do have a bit they, of wine I think they mined the place to... to... To the extinction. I have a little bit on uh, food. I, I mentioned, well, I mentioned their Torte Tremonti, the big mega dark Kit Kat with three layers of wafer cake, mm-hmm. um, named after the three mountains of San Marino. But there was also a local flatbread, uh, which in, in San Marino is known as Piada and locally is just known as Piadina, which is basically just like a, a wrap, basically, a bit of unleavened bread that you put either Nutella and bananas into or you put like, a, you know, ham and cheese and so on into. Um, but I, I found this little rhyme on Wikipedia about it. Uh, la jebone en tutti mood, la jebone en cascondida, sanavi ancora capi, ascor propri de la pida. Uh, so I'm going to translate that and trying to make it rhyme a little better than this translator did. Delicious with filling or even served with nothing in it. If you haven't already guessed, I am talking about pied in it kind of works <laughs> kind of works that was that was 15 minutes worth to get that there, there's, in it. there's also a yep. bustrengo which is a kind of a, a dense cornmeal based fruitcake okay which is eaten around christmas cooked in a fireplace rather than nice. an oven with hot coals on the lid so it cooks on both sides which sounds quite nice also we're mentioning they speak italian in case that wasn't clear um, right very small amount of people speak a Romanian dialect, Romagnolo, okay. I think it's called. But I think that's more of a elderly farmers type language that okay. their children don't speak. As far as I can see, everyone's Catholic. Uh, I don't think it's it's Italy, like it's it's around it's it also Italy, Italy and yeah. named yeah. after a saint. Um, they, they like the Pope, Il Papa. So just just in case there's any d- doubt in your mind about the the demographics yeah. of San Marino, yeah, um, don't let there be. Um, sports. 
We mentioned earlier about the crossbows. Mm, so, yeah. yeah, crossbow archery is their national sport. They're really and good. each year, I believe, the different municipalities compete for the title mm-hmm. of best archer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, they're really good at crossbow archery. Uh, we have a couple of videos. I'm, I'm going to put, put up some videos of the, the Federazione yeah. Balestrieri San Marinese. Which is they're really they're really proud of this this kind of medieval you know they all dress up in in doublets and mm. hats and do all these ceremonies in the streets it lo- looks pretty impressive and then shoot things just, and deadly yeah. As well. yeah. yeah they look really scary and then we have football in which they are mm-hmm. one of the worst teams in the world oh yes famously they said I found a a, a pretty good write up on Reddit from the soccer subreddit which i'm gonna i'm gonna briefly quote from here he says uh when we use the word bad in football it typically comes in relative terms a player dismissed as awful in the premier league will probably look pretty pretty solid a couple of tiers down the league um similarly woeful Mm -hmm. displays are usually hyperbole with the occasional notable exception but san marino's status as the world's pinnacle joke team is the stuff of myth and legend over their 27 years as a footballing nation, San Marino have conceded an average of 4.4 goals per game. Calling them a glutton for punishment mm-hmm. would be giving gourmands everywhere far too much credit. With that being said, they are always damn fun to play as uh, on FIFA. Nice. And trying to win the World Cup with them is the EA Sports equivalent of Through the Fire and the Flames, which I believe is uh, one of the <laughs> toughest uh, songs to play on um, Guitar Hero. Guitar Hero. There we go. That's the one. They're uh, they're pretty notable in football just for how how often they they lose. I believe there's a Wikipedia page that has a list of all the games that they have not lost, and there are yeah, five true. games it's on true. there. <laughs> there are five games um, listed. So I have some uh, numbers to add a little more color to this. They have scored a Go total on. of twenty three international goals, one of which was against Ireland in two thousand and seven. To be fair to them, and three on Belgium, mm-hmm. um, which is actually pretty good. Their biggest win was versus Liechtenstein, 1-0. Their only win was versus Liechtenstein, 1-0. They've only won one game ever. Uh, their Football Association was founded in 1931, but they've only been playing international since 86. Their biggest loss was versus Germany, 13-0. Um, they, wow. they did have one good player, a guy called Massimo Bonini, who played at Juventus in the 80s, and he won pretty much everything with them, but um, with San Marino, obviously nothing. Yeah, well, one, one one man in eleven isn't isn't enough. Just on other sports, um, there was a, a San Marino Grand Prix for years between nineteen eighty one oh. and two thousand and six. It was not held in San Marino. It was held at Imola, <laughs> which was about a hundred kilometers away, uh, an hour and a half drive. In nineteen seventy eight, in the Italian Grand Prix, there was a pileup on the starting line, um, so they switched the Italian Grand Prix to be at Imola because they thought that the uh, Monza track was too dangerous. So Imola had the Italian Grand Prix for a year and it gave the organizers uh, a taste of what they could get money-wise, but there was already an Italian Grand Prix, so they needed to have another Italian Grand Prix. So they asked the Automobile Club of San Marino to hold a Grand Prix and hold it at their track. So then the San Marino Grand Prix was thus born in 1981. Hmm. One of the most famous events, if not possibly, I'm not a Grand Prix person myself or a motorsports person, but probably if you know only one event in motor racing it's probably this which was in 1994 at Imola at the San Marino Grand Prix where both uh, Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna uh, died Ah. 
that was the, the the two crashes there, as well as both mm. uh, Ayrton Senna immortalized in the film Senna uh, mm-hmm. and Roland Ratzenberger. They both died. But also Rubens Barrichello, who would go on to race for years and years, a Brazilian, he suffered a concussion. Mm-hmm. A wheel flew off one of the cars as it left the pit lane and injured four mechanics. And eight audience members were injured by debris from a collision. So it was this insane couple of days where just, there was just fatalities and injuries everywhere. On the track, in the stands, in the pits, it was a bit of a bit of a massacre. And as a result, they... They change a lot of, of, of how uh, Formula One uh, is, is administered and, you know, the kind of limits on engine size and limits on what they can do and, and changing even some of the, the tracks as well. Um, yeah. my, my last little uh, sports factoid is that they have a quite, you know, they have an okay rugby team, a small club. Uh, they play a bit of volleyball and basketball and they have a baseball team, I think professional baseball team in the Italian league. And their name is... T and A San Marino. Uh, leave that there. Wow. T and A right. San Marino Baseball Club. Nice. I would I would love to get hold of a jersey from them. That'd be that'd be pretty fun, I think. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I think I think that's it for today's episode. Yep. Small but mighty. So you can learn more about the podcast or find more episodes at our website, which is 80dayspodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram under 80 Days Podcast. One of the best things that you can do to help the visibility of the show and to spread the word is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, We Mm -hmm. would really appreciate that. Or anywhere else. Uh, Or just... Um, tell a friend or yep, yep. leave us a review anywhere we'll shout it at your window exactly if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on twitter or facebook or contact us at 80dayspodcast at gmail.com as of this season we are also on patreon if you're not familiar patreon is a platform where you can back creators financially for the content that they produce we would very much appreciate if you'd be able to do that for us our patrons are entitled to different kinds of perks depending on how much money you donate towards the podcast so you can uh, have a say in where our podcast goes next you can get free merchandise or postcards from exotic locations or you can even jump on a skype call with us and uh, talk about where you want the podcast to go next we have to thank our new backers from this month who include nathan hickson Grace and Justine Gabrielle Punzalan. Thank you very much for your generous contributions. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Uh, if you want to know more about Patreon or find out more about the perks that we mentioned, you can visit patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. Joe, where can people find more about you on the internet? They can they can look for some outdated uh, aspects of my life on my website, time to burn.com, where burn is spelled B Y R. Mark? Uh, come at me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at MarkBoyle86. And you can find me on Twitter at the Luke J. Kelly or at my website, LukeJKelly.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Arrivederci. Bye-bye.